I sat next to an angel investor and I said, look, what do I do? I'm not going to have any of my business left by Series B. What should I do with my valuation? And he goes, call me a bluff. Just say, this particular investor is investing at this amount. Are you in or are you out? Put the hard word on them. So I did. And I said, hey, this person's investing. Are you in or out? And they're like, ah, 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 we're in. Ready to raise capital? It's time to get your dose of investment insights with the Investment Fix podcast. Brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Kia ora, I'm Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of the Investment Team at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Today on the Investment Fix, we're going to be talking to the founders of two New Zealand companies that have chosen angel investment to fund their growth. And with me to talk about what it takes to secure angel funding and how they determined it was right for them, Abini founder and CEO Sue D. Bievra and Channel founder and CEO Dr. Elizabeth Berryman. Thank you both so much for being here to chat about your investment and growth journey today. Great to be here, Dylan. We're super excited. Kia ora, Dylan. Thanks for having us. Let's start by telling people who you are and what your company does. What's your elevator pitch? Beanie, we're online accountants. We offer online accounting services to small business owners in New Zealand. The best way to differentiate how we do and what we do is most accountants look backwards and they're looking what happened last year. We are really, really excited to look forward with our clients to work out what their goals are and how we can work with them to get them to where they want to be, wherever that is. And just give us some context about your growth journey today, when you were founded, how big is your team and where are your customers? We started in 2014. We kind of tippy-toed into the market with our first website. It boomed a little bit faster than we were expecting, I guess. So now we're a team of 32 people and we have always worked remotely. So we're a fully distributed team all over New Zealand. Just bizarrely, our office manager got locked down. I was talking to her this morning. She's in Rio. So we've got people globally as well, which is kind of cool. We look after small business owners all over New Zealand and predominantly small business owners, but all different sectors. And what about Channel? Elizabeth. Yeah. Channel is a workplace wellbeing app and we are a platform that's fully digital. It enables organisations to know how their staff are doing. It's a safe channel from the front line right to the boardroom. And we measure things like psychological risks. That's like bullying, sexual harassment, discrimination, all those really, really tricky issues. And so we're a platform that is enabling people to understand the health of their people. And very topical right now, workplace resilience, isn't it? Very topical, yes. COVID was probably one of the best things that could have actually happened for our business. We've just seen exponential growth and it's a crazy place to be in right now. Well, tell us about that. When were you founded and how have you grown in the last wee while? We actually were founded in November 2019. We went live with our first client and that was crazy considering we had three months under our belt and February 2020, the world changed. COVID came knocking and all of a sudden people were like, who's that chick that was talking about a mental health app? We need that now. Things just took off quickly during lockdown. Now, I want to take you both back to before you raised your capital and just give some context behind some of the decision making that you made. How did you determine that it was the right time to raise capital? And why did you decide on angel investment? It was a difficult decision. Me and my husband had founded a construction company and we bootstrapped that company. So when we came to doing this particular company, it's a bit of a different approach and strategy that we've taken. Doing a tech startup, we needed to get going as fast as we could. We knew we had an early mover advantage in this wellbeing space and we needed to get going as fast as we could. And so taking on investment was the option that we chose. Then there was a whole lot of discussion around how much to raise, what's the pre-money valuation, where's your capital raise strategy, 
strategy, how many years you're going to raise and all of that, which I actually really didn't know much about. So it was a crash course in investment for me. I think Benny is probably around my 12th startup in terms of just starting a business up, but it was my first tech startup. And it's just a profoundly different animal from starting any other kind of business in my experience. The thing about tech is you need a lot of capital just to build out your platform and to actually get into the market in a sensible way. I think we've all bootstrapped different businesses. Obviously, Elizabeth has done that and so have I. But to actually launch a tech company, you you really need capital. That's just the bottom line. And so we launched in 2014. Our business model as well is we need to pay quite a lot of money to acquire customers. We need money for growth and we need money for the developers. And so in 2015, we did our first angel investor round. Just talking about how much you needed to raise, what was the decision making that went into the stake that you were prepared to give up, particularly for a first capital raise? What went into the decision making, but also did you seek advice and where did you go? The decision making was around, we have a MVP, a minimal viable product. We can sell this to commercial clients, but actually we know that we've got to keep building. As Sue said, it's a lot of work and expense to build software. And initially we actually outsourced that and it was quickly becoming apparent that we needed to build an in-house team to do that. And looking at New Zealand prices and having 24-7 support and tech and all that kind of stuff, we were realising it was going to be an expensive exercise. So we started to look at what our need was in our development roadmap and how much money we needed to get there. Also for sales and marketing to get going to get that ARR up as fast as we could. There was a lot of decision making going in there and yes, I started talking to absolutely everybody and anybody who had just done around. They were the most useful people. And then started talking to VCs, started talking to a lot of coaches and business people about how the whole valuation system works and the fundraising aspects to that. What about you, Sue? I love hearing this story, Elizabeth. It gladdens my heart. When I did this in 2015, I did it a whole lot more stupid than the way you just described, which I wish I had heard what you've just said. So I hope anybody who's listening really takes that on board. When we went into it in 2015, we did talk to people, but it wasn't quite the ecosystem even five years ago, which is quite interesting. So we went to Enterprise Angels where we had a connection and we discussed the valuation with Enterprise Angels. So I went to the people who were going to buy my company and asked them what they wanted to pay. So I look back now and I think that was pretty stupid. So I think we undervalued our company in the first round, which is probably why I stood up in a room and pitched to 30 male investors and 27 signed up. And I immediately knew I'd undervalued the company. I love your words. Definitely talk to every man and his dog. You know, it's really interesting if you look at the Ice House showcase now and they produce all this information about the valuation of those companies. So now it's a lot easier to value tech startups than it was in 2015. So I love the way you described it. Was there any angst around how much stake you were going to be giving up to get investors alongside? And how did you reconcile that? Yes, absolutely. There was a huge, huge debate about your valuation. How did you arrive here? What model did you use? What's other examples in the industry right now? Why do you think that you deserve that valuation? It was actually quite personal. I don't know how you found it, Sue, but there was a lot of questions about me as a founder and how we had derived that valuation. And ultimately, I actually just said, this is our capital raising strategy. This is the spreadsheet. We need to raise at this point at this valuation. Otherwise, I am not going to be incentivized as a founder by the time we get to a series B because there'll be none left in the company. So that was actually the argument they won on the day, which was really good. You wanted to hear stories. Well, I was being really, really pushed down on my valuation and I was about to agree to it (laughs) because I had no options at that time. 
I managed to go to a fundraiser dinner for a not-for-profit and I sat next to an angel investor and I said, look, what do I do? Like, I'm not going to have any of my business left by Series B. What should I do with my valuation? And he goes, call the bluff. Just say, this particular investor is investing at this amount. Are you in or are you out? And tomorrow's Saturday. So ring them on a Saturday morning and just put the hard word on them. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I did. And I rang and I said, hey, this person's investing. Are you in or are you out? And they're like, ah, 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 ah. We're in. And so then I was like, cool, once they have one person in, then the rest just, just snowballed. I would really jump on that. I've had that experience several times. If you get a good, solid sort of investor, you get one person in, all of a sudden the deal just starts to come together beautifully. And particularly if you can get a name in there as well, that really just provides huge amounts of confidence in the market, I think. An entrepreneur once told me this genius way of valuing your company. So let's say for the sake of argument, you want to raise $1 million but you're only prepared to dilute your shares to the extent of 10%. So basically, that's how you value your company. One million at 10% means the company is valued at $10 million. Sometimes we feel we want to try and justify the valuation, but we don't need to. We just need to work out how much money we need and how much we're prepared to dilute. And that's it. The person who actually told me this was my father-in-law. And my father-in-law used to be the head of the Dutch Stock Exchange. And he was also the chairman of ABM AMRO. So he was a very experienced investor and was always looking at company valuations. And he said, it's really simple, Sue. How much money do you need? How much are you prepared to give away? That's the value of the company. And I just thought that was actually genius and it totally makes sense. And that is how guys do it. They just work out what they need and work it back. For me, it's important because it actually comes from the investor point of view. That was how he thought you should value companies. Just like Elizabeth said, that's what it's worth. Pay it or don't. Music to my ears. They're very strategic about the way you're thinking about the process. One, looking for a lead investor, but probably more importantly, you're looking future rounds ahead. So it's a really good segue into the process itself. How did you find the actual process? So once you've made the early decision making to raise angel investment and you're going out there, what was your experience? What worked well? And what did you find the challenges? We started around August 2019, and because we were research-based, we came through Auckland University, we went through the commercialization pathway. It was really great. I got to present to the Return on Science Committee and hear a whole lot of feedback. There were some amazing investors in the room at that time as well, and unknown to me, there was a lot actually on the Zoom call from the US listening in. And so that was a really great way to do a soft pitch. It was 20 minutes long. I could ramble on and make mistakes. It was a nice way to get to know what it's like to do a pitch to investors and what kind of questions you're going to be asked. And from then, I worked with them and they put me in touch with NZTE and we worked out how we can fundraise this money. Were we going to go for the VC route? Were we going to go angel route? We're going to go friends and family. There was lots of different options and we decided to try all of the options. It was interesting deciding where to go. We opened that round in February 2020. What happened in February 2020? COVID hit. And so I was having a pitch to Flying Kiwi Angels. That was my first pitch. And they were all distracted because we were hearing about this thing in Wuhan and San Fran was getting shut down. There was a big distraction and everyone was like, there's going to be a GFC. There's going to be a meltdown. The world is going to shut. This is doomsday. 
And here's me pitching for my 800K. It was really terrible timing. Thank goodness for the amazing team at Flying Kiwi Angels. They managed to get that out to their investor network and managed to get voted on. And so then they came on as our lead investor. So I was very lucky, in fact, that there was some really key actual female investors in the room who believed in it and said, we need this and come COVID or no COVID, this is what we're going to do. So they really led the charge. Then a couple of other people pulled out, which was really interesting because they thought that the world was going to go into meltdown and some of those people were big funds. But we had a few VCs come in. We also had uh, high net worth individuals and angels join that round. If you went live in February, how long did it take you to close that? Although there was a lot of people committed, the amount that they were committing went from 400K down to 200K down to 100K. So all of a sudden my round that was looking like it was 50% filled was actually not even getting close. I then had to go into action mode. Every single night of the week I was pitching and I was calling the Melbourne Angels Group, Enterprise Angels, Nelson Angels, everybody. It was good practice, but also a big slice of humble pie. Doing pitches was actually really quite hard. But on a positive note, I was actually eight months pregnant during this time. Because it was all on Zoom and I couldn't do in-person pitches, no one had a clue that I was very heavily pregnant. So I didn't get any questions about, oh, how are you going to manage the family and business life and all of that. I find that even though it was hard pitching on Zoom, it was good because I didn't have that bias there. And what about you, Sue? What worked well in the process you went through? And then what did you find the big challenges? I think it's really important to distinguish between a small around of half a million. We were trying to pitch for 1.5 to 2 million in 2018. And this real quantum leap. Angel investors around half a million I found that relatively straightforward. Like I said, with the first round, I raised half a million like in a heartbeat and it was actually quite painless. And we did a second round with EA. Again, they knew me. They knew that I'd said I'd do this thing. I'd done this thing. So the second raise was also fairly straightforward. But in 2018, I needed to raise more to get some real growth. And oh my God, I fell into this kind of pit of despair. It was awful. It's much harder. Sorry to break the two, Elizabeth. You'll probably be fine because you seem really organized. But it was really super hard for us. And we actually employed a Wellington company to help us develop a capital strategy, have a beautiful pitch deck, everything you meant to do in that round. And it failed horribly. I still remember saying, ideally, like female investors, if possible. And they came to me with a list of 20 male names. They all passed, went out to Australian VCs, couldn't give a shit. It was really hard. Um, At the end of 2018, I was like, it's broken. I was pitched out. I can never stand up and speak about this company again. I'm, I'm dead in the water. But then I entered the Shio competition, became a finalist, and then pitched at the Shio conference. And Teresa Gatting said, well, I'm in. It was like, tick, all of a sudden, the whole scene changed completely. Then K1W1 decided to come in and Icehouse were going to lead the round. And Robbie said, Sue, for us to lead the round, you have to get up and pitch at the Icehouse showcase. I only did because I had Teresa Gatting and Kirsty Reynolds, who's a Shio activator and also on the Icehouse board, got me in. And poor Robbie Paul was backed into a corner by these two power chicks and made to help me. But anyway, pitched there and then got supported by Archangels as well. And then in the end, we were actually massively oversubscribed because there's that momentum. You were saying you have to call up and say, are you in or or are you out? It was a bit like that for us. So we closed out and thank goodness we closed out in 2019. But from Teresa saying, I will invest in April 2019 to money in my bank was December 2019. So even though it was actually quite a free rolling 
process with a lot of momentum behind it, it still takes a little bit of time. So many people don't realize how much of a confidence game raising capital is. And you get a really strong lead investor, you're going to get people come in behind that pretty quickly. Everyone's looking for that first person to make that first move. So very well done. Just thinking back, is there anything you'd do differently? I would do everything differently. (laughs) I would have come forward to 2020 and heard Elizabeth speak on this podcast and then gone back and done it the way she did it. The only thing you can say is I've tried everything. You fall into all the pits and you learn as you go. I don't know. What about you, Elizabeth? That's a really difficult question. I wouldn't raise during a worldwide pandemic. (laughs) It might have been good for our business, but it was not very good for investors at all. That was really, really hard. And somebody told me that for every yes you get, there's 70 no's. And so that was really good because when I was pitching all the time and getting no after no after no, I'd go, yep, that's okay, that's fine, that's another no, I'm one step closer to my yes. So you have to build this real strong sense of resilience and confidence to keep going. I had a friend who's a white young male and he's also going through this investment stage at the same time and he was so confident and cocky and almost arrogant. And I was like, oh, I need to steal a little bit of that. So I did, I would go and hang out with him and be like, let's do pitch practice. And I'd borrow some of the things that he would say. That actually really helped. But what I would do differently is try and find that lead investor earlier. Fantastic advice. In series one, we had Suze Reynolds on here and she was talking a lot about the characteristics to be a founder. And she said two things. One was that resilience. You're going to get a lot of no's, but it's also that persistence. And I think both of you have just talked about having to do that. I just want to change tack again a little bit because I'm really keen to dig into the angel investors as an asset class. So can you tell us who your angel investors and talk to us about how they came on board? Angel investors is a really interesting subgroup because they really fall between the three Fs of family, friends and fools and the VCs and institutional investors. In my mind, the angel investors we have, and I love them all dearly and we communicate with them regularly, they have actually been only supportive of the company. They've actually been really good. But I think the way that they think about this money is it's like they're throwing $10,000 on a chip. It's a roulette wheel. And so a lot of these angel investors are EA and the ICE angels. They don't know what's going to win. So they kind of like the idea of this pitch. They kind of like the sound of your business. And they just flick a chip on the table for $10,000 or $20,000. In some ways, they're quite unstressed because it's kind of play money. I don't know what your experience is, Elizabeth. I'm not talking about people who are putting in half a million. A lot of angel investors are really just playing. They've made a stack of money somewhere else. And they want to kind of play in the entrepreneurial space. We've only had good experiences with our angel investors that have been generally supportive, generally not in our business, but just happy to support. And what about you, Elizabeth? Yeah, I'd have to say similar experience, actually. I was warned against angels. I had had some people who had had a really terrible experience and were like, don't do it. So I did actually go in with a little bit more awareness of the potential for it to go wrong. When we were talking in our DD and getting a draft term sheets and things, it was really important about who got seats on the board, who those investor reps would be and all that kind of stuff. So I was a little bit more wary. In fact, there was somebody that was put forward from an investor group and I said, actually, I think there might be someone with better fit. They came back with another option. I said, yep, great, let's do that. I was a little bit more hesitant, I suppose. But in fact, everything so far has gone really, really well with angels. They've been nothing but supportive. They've even brought in sales because they usually are on business 
businesses themselves. They sit on a lot of governance boards and so they've brought a whole lot of sales in for us as well. So I absolutely love that network. And sometimes I'll put that through in my investor update and our newsletters, some of the asks. I'll say, hey, does anyone have any knowledge about this or about this? And I sent one out just the other day and I had about five or six replies with, hey, I can help you with this. And hey, I know this person. So there's actually a wealth of knowledge you can tap into using angels. So just to be super clear, for me, an angel investor is somebody who's coming in through an angel investor network, not just Uncle Bob, who says, oh, I'll be an angel investor and I'll put 100K in. And then they're outside of an organized network and the rules are not clear. Whereas with EA and probably Flying Kiwi and ICE, you know, they know the game, they know the rules, and we're all clear on what their involvement is and what it is not. People have bad experiences when they're outside of a known framework, I think. You just touched on it, but were you looking for any particular qualities when you were looking at angel investors or the angel group where you're saying, I want to bring on some skills in this area? How did you select them? So that person that I said actually would be someone better, it was because the person that they had put forward actually had no experience in tech or in a startup or in SaaS. And so I was like, that's not any of the three things that I really need actually right now. He had experience in global business, which was great, but that's going to be maybe year two or year three. So let's do those first three things first. And so then they managed to find someone actually with all three of those skills who had been on other startup boards. What about you, Sue? It depends what we're talking about. If we're talking about an investor rep on your board and you've got formal governance structure, then obviously you want to make sure that you've got somebody, not a bunny, or at least not be an impediment to your business. So I think that that investor rep position is super important. And again, most investor networks are sensitive to that. So if you say, actually, this person's going to disrupt my chi, then they'll just withdraw them and bring somebody else in. And I'm glad to hear that you had that same experience, Elizabeth. We certainly have been well served by our investor rep so far. Do you guys surround yourselves with outside people to help you with your thinking? Do you lean on your investors for that or do you have an outside circle? I've got a number of female networks. Obviously, Shio is a big network for me. That's a very active network of very influential and experienced women in New Zealand. And you can reach out to anybody. So I reach out regularly to people in that network. But I also have an informal group of female entrepreneurs. That's the kind of group that you're in a chat and you've got your head metaphorically in your hand saying, oh, my God, I had a horrible day. And they fluff and tend you. So I've got different groups for different things. What about you, Elizabeth? Who do you sort of lean on? I actually didn't find a pre-existing network. So I've just developed one myself. I found other people out there who were doing similar things and I'll say, hey, do I catch up for coffee? And that coffee turned into another person coming and then another person coming. We were all in different groups. So one person's in food tech, one person's in fintech. I was like, hey, we need some specific advice around this. So then I would call up someone I knew who was a second time founder or something and I'd get them in to come for a coffee breakfast with us. And so this informal group is just developing. It's really, really great because we're like, can we see your shareholders agreements and can we share this kind of information? So it's starting to form an ecosystem, which is quite nice. What do you think was most compelling for your investors in helping them choose to invest in you? Are you confident? Do you look like you know where you're going? Do you have a clear vision? Can you articulate it? There's a lot of, do they like the look and feel of you? They're looking for the perennial favorites of scalability, market size. But those are the boxes you just have to tick on your way through the pitch. And how big's the market? How much are you going to get? How are you going to get there? What's your cost of acquisition? So they're looking for those hard metrics. And then they're looking for that. Do they like the look of you? And of course, that's where women, unfortunately, struggle because we don't necessarily look like an investable product, and which is why we have really, really, really bad access to capital. That's why I'm here talking today, as is Elizabeth, because we need more women to be seen as investable mm. product. Absolutely. Mm. 
And what about you, Elizabeth? Similar to what Sue was saying before, for some of these angel investors who are gambling money, so they're just going to chuck 10 grand in and see how it goes. So for me, it was about those emotional, social impact, visionary statements to say, hey, actually, what kind of world do you want for your kids and for your grandkids? We've got a terrible suicide rate in New Zealand. What are we going to do about it? We can't wait for the public system to do something about it. We have to do it ourselves. For angels, I think they are quite emotional, even though they loved all that hard metrics. And I'd say here's the DD report that Flying Kiwi Angels has prepared. But actually, it's all about the social impact for us. If you're going to talk to another founder looking to raise capital at the moment, what would be your one piece of advice you'd say to them? So much to say, but there's an amazing TED talk, which is all around how questions are asked in pitches. Women traditionally get asked what's called a prevention question, which is designed to actually bring you down. It's a negative question like, oh, my God, how are you going to manage churn? So the one piece of advice I'd give, if you get asked a negative question, just ignore it and give positive feedback. So if somebody says, oh, how are you going to manage churn? You say, the market is so big and growing so fast, I'm not worried about churn. So you have to just avoid it, go straight into the promotional answer. And if you do that, you can negate a lot of the negative impact of being, unfortunately, a female on stage asking for money. So that's my tip. And what about you, Elizabeth? That's great advice, Sue. So my piece of advice would probably be, don't have a baby whilst doing a funding round. And saying that, actually, don't let anything hold you back. It is going to be tough, but there is so many people out there to help you and support you. And don't give up. One of the things that I've been doing is keeping my mind in a really good place, quite on topic, considering we run a mental health well-being company. So all that self-talk, all that positive psychology. I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's one called How I Built This, which is a story about other founders' journeys. You look at all the big tech startups like Dropbox and Slack and you think, oh, they must have had it easy. Uh, no, 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 no. There has been multiple times when they have almost broken and given up. And the thing is, is that they didn't give up. They kept going and then became the unicorn that everybody talks about. So I just love surrounding myself with positive people to keep yourself in that right mental mind frame. Powerful message. We talked to Rod Drury on this season of the Investment Fix as well, and you're a zero platinum partner. What does a partnership relationship like that do for your credibility with investors? It's a really interesting one. I am filled with admiration for Rod Drury and Zero, and they have fundamentally changed almost everything about New Zealand. I'm sure Rod didn't go into it for social impact, but it's been a huge impact. And Zero is a very supportive partner to Beanie in quite tangible, practical ways. So we're launching into Australia in June. So I said, can I speak to the Director of Growth for Australia? Because I wanted to understand the adoption rate of fintech in Australia. Yeah, sure. Come up to Auckland, have an hour of his time. Well, that's amazing access, which they offer. They share information and we do loads of work around APIs and information. So really, really good. The Zero Platinum Partner thing is really directed at chartered accountants applying their trade. So that doesn't have an impact, but the larger relationship for sure does. Gotcha. I'm really keen to hear your growth plans. You got additional investment rounds on the horizon. What's next for Channel? What's next for Beanie? Channel had a plan that was what we presented to our first pitches, but in fact, COVID has actually changed all of that. And things have now stepped up a notch. We're looking at expanding overseas already. In the last six months, we've gone live in seven different countries because we've had some multinational companies come on board and say, hey, our team is remote. Can you support our team in India? Can you support our team in the US? It's been a fast growth scale up there. We've also gone really, really strong in Australia. The leads were just naturally coming in. And so I thought, shall we take them? 
why not? And so we've set up an Australian country manager in Sydney already, and she's already running strong over there. And again, with help with the NZTE, we are getting that Australian office up and going. It's something I really didn't expect. And so now we're going to have to go back and look at our strategy and look at it from a different angle. And it's really exciting, but also we've got to be careful not to grow too fast, make sure that the wheels aren't falling off and getting a really good, solid team who are just so passionate about what we do and is just working around the clock to make it all happen. It's quite exciting. Sounds amazing. It was really interesting for us in COVID. So when COVID hit, and I think you alluded to Elizabeth, it was like Armageddon had arrived in the first week of April. I can still remember it was like being punched in the gut. It's like, oh my God, what is going to happen? I was really concerned, not so much for us actually, but for our clients. So we service small business owners in New Zealand and who knew how many were going to be standing later in the year. As it transpired, things turned out a lot better. But during that first six week period of COVID, all my thinking got super compressed. I was thinking I need to delve back into what our small business clients want. You can start to make assumptions about your client base. So we took that time because people were sitting at home bored. So we started calling everybody. We did a massive market research project, which was so interesting and so much fun. And we really discovered that we needed to upgrade our product so we could predict the future for our small business clients. So that was the focus for last year. What we've done is we're the only accountant in New Zealand that's got a direct link into the IRD. What it means is we can now reduce tax penalties, reduce tax interest. Our clients always know what's coming up. So we've got this amazing amount of data coming in through there. We're now doing cash IQ, which is forecasting the cash future for our clients. We're doing wealth IQ, which is forecasting the wealth future for our clients. So we've had a profound product shift which is super exciting. Talking about Xero, we had the ex-head of design who's now overhauling our whole design piece and we're launching into Australia in June. And ZT have been amazing and into the UK the year after. And our sales just went crazy last year because of course we were an online accountant in an online world. So yeah, super duper busy. Very exciting and very inspirational, both of you. It's amazing to hear how COVID's changed things for your businesses and how you've both used the opportunities it created. You've shared some real valuable insights today. We've heard about the importance of getting that first investor on board, figuring out your valuation and the stake you want, and sticking to it. And we've heard about how deliberate you were in thinking not just about your first round, but raising multiple capital rounds ahead. It's also clear from what you both said that having the confidence to back yourself is so critical. Sue, Elizabeth, thank you both so much for sharing your investment story with us today. Kia ora. It's just been such a pleasure, Dylan, and really lovely to meet you, Elizabeth. I really enjoyed listening to your talk. Yes, so amazing to hear about your story as well. Thanks so much for joining with us today. That was your investment fix from NZTE. For a bigger financial fix, head to investnewzealand.nz.